Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. All politics is tribal at this point. And a lot of folks, and I had this experience directly, will just completely shut down if you have a D next to your name or an R next to your name. Right. So, so exactly. if you have something neutral next to your name, they were like, I don't know what to make of this. I'm gonna, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. You know, I mean, the, 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 the label Democrat is so loaded right now for so many people. Uh, but, you know. You can have the same person saying the exact same things with something else next to their name. It's called an independent or a forwardist or right. whatever. And people would have a completely different reaction. Right. And, you know, you, you, you kind of make some gestures just to some cultural identity symbols that are important. And suddenly, oh, this is a different person. to have with me on the podcast senior fellow at new america which is this extraordinary think tank the author of breaking the two-party doom loop so you know that i like him (laughs) (laughs) political science phd lee drutman welcome lee hey it's great to be with you andrew really excited for this conversation well lee you are ahead of me on this and you've literally written books about this uh, but you also do have a PhD in political science, which is something that a lot of people studied as undergrads, myself included, at, at Brown. Um, and certainly I stopped there. I think most people stop there. So would love to hear a little bit about how you came to this field. Were you always deeply interested in politics as a young person? You know, I, I was actually an English major at Brown. Uh, so I, you know, I, I was actually not super into politics, but I, as I kind of entered my 20s and I started out as a newspaper reporter and just got more and more interested in politics and yeah, decided it would be uh, fun to get a PhD in political science because then I'd have an excuse to just read a lot and, and hang out and, and think. And, and then it just totally, totally grabbed me and fascinated me. So you got your PhD from Berkeley in the early 2000s, uh, and then did you head straight to D.C.? Is that right? Yeah. So I did three years of coursework in Berkeley, and then I went to to D.C. to do research for my PhD dissertation, which was about corporate lobbying in D.C., and I figured the best way to do research was to talk to a bunch of corporate lobbyists and and ask them about what they did and hang out with them, and and I, I learned a lot. Yeah, you wrote a book about lobbying. Is that right? <laughs> uh, that is right. That was that was. It's called the business of America is lobbying. Wow. So, uh, can you summarize for us what's going on on that front? I'm just going to give you the general understanding. Uh, there's a lot of lobbying. It's done by really big companies. It works great in the sense that they they can kneecap any uh, move that is going to hurt them. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Is that a reasonable summary? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is a pretty good summary. Uh, one, one of the things that I, I was particularly interested in writing this book was how corporate lobbying had sort of just come to overtake Washington, D.C., and whether there was anything we all should be doing about it. So in the how corporate lobbying just you know, overtook Washington, D.C., the the 
thing that I, I realized was that you know once companies started lobbying, they tended to lobby more and more because they hired lobbyists who then said, oh, here are all these things that you should be lobbying for, and here are all these things that the government might do to hurt your business. So it just kind of became this self-perpetuating business that just kind of ate policymaking in Washington. And I said, well, how do lobbyists have all this power? So some of it is the conventional story of, of campaign contributions, but a lot of it is just that lobbyists have this incredible monopoly on policy expertise. And what you find when you go inside of a lot of congressional offices and even some committee offices is, or most committee offices, is you find not that many staff. And the staff who are there are kind of overworked, underpaid, and, and a bit on the inexperienced side because as soon as they achieve a certain amount of experience, they, they burn out and they want to get some real money by being a corporate lobbyist. Yeah, I, I've experienced some parts of this uh, through friends who are on Capitol Hill. Uh, but I do want to dig into this because it's fascinating. And I want to share with you an Onion article that helped motivate my entire career in politics. <laughs> and the Onion article is from about 16 years ago, and it goes like this. It says, the American people hire high-powered lobbyists to represent their interests in Washington. And then there's a guy in a suit standing there and saying, with me, Representing the American people, like, well, actually, you know, like, like see things uh, happen. And I thought this was hysterically funny. But I also thought, wow, this is kind of accurate. <laughs> uh, and um, so a couple of things to, for context. The lobbying industry has dramatically mushroomed in size over the last number of years. That, that, that's right, right? That, that is correct. Although it's kind of flatlined over the last decade and a half or, or so, only grown slightly. But there was a, a really big growth in the 90s and the early 2000s. So give us an order of magnitude from what to what in, like, let's say, the early 90s. Till... So, you know, it went from about, uh, you know, one, one and a half, maybe about a one billion dollar industry to about a three or four billion dollar industry and that's just in reported lobbying and by the way i do remember that onion cartoon or onion onion article and i loved uh, it too <laughs> you loved it too look at that the onion ahead uh, of the curve so it quadrupled <laughs> so lobbying quadrupled in size as an industry roughly oh. and and that's disclosed amounts from yeah. the early 90s to let's call it 2010 yeah uh so that's a lot uh, and I have friends who worked on Capitol Hill who became lobbyists. And to your point, they get paid more, a lot more yeah. a, as lobbyists. And so there's this concern a lot of Americans have about the revolving door from government to industry uh, as a lobbyist. I think at least one study I saw said that a majority of former legislators became either lobbyists or associated with lobbyists in particular ways. And their staffers showed a very similar migration. Uh, that's also accurate? Yeah, there, there's a pretty high, uh, what they call in Washington, the revolving door from uh, government to industry. But, you know, it's a, it's a pretty nice place to land. And, and a lot of these folks don't even actually do all that much work other than make a few phone calls here and there, especially the former members. Wow, that does sound like a pretty good gig. Uh, the, like, I, I know someone who worked on Capitol Hill was relatively senior, not a member himself. Um, but he got paid, you know, like two to three times his previous yeah, salary. So that's about right. Uh, and so you have this entire industry of people. I also, I'm going to share some more lobbying stories. I went to a lobbying breakfast as a guest a number of years ago where there was a um, senator. And then he was just sitting down for breakfast. And I think that his campaign was getting, I don't know, $10,000, $12,000 to have this breakfast. And so he'd be eating his breakfast, he was bored out of his mind, and then there were some people around him who were just talking to him about, I think in this case it was like import policies or something, something that was really not very interesting. And then I was there, and I felt like keeping my mouth shut because I was there for free, like I didn't pay anything. It was just a friend who was at the lobbying firm brought me. And the actual dynamic was very different, where as soon as I was introduced and it was clear I was not a lobbyist, the senator became very interested in me because it was like, oh, someone I can talk to that doesn't have this uh, stupid agenda that I don't care about, that I'm just kind of suffering through to get this $12,000 into my, my account. Um, but it, it did strike me how deeply insinuated into the system was where a legislator would just sort of shrug and accept that, you know, like that, that their breakfast was going to be uh, 
unpleasant um, just to, you know, just get some more money flowing into their coffers. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the name of the game. And they all complain about it, especially once they retire. They, spend, oh, they say, oh, I spent all this money. Oh, sorry, I spent all this time raising money and it was so unpleasant, but that's just what I got to do to get elected. And I guess it's pretty nice to be a senator. Feels feels important. Feel like you're doing big things and you've got to spend your time dialing for the for the dollars or, or eating scrambled eggs for the dollars or whatever whatever it is but it's all for the dollars well yeah the eggs were not bad I had some eggs oh they were. they were they were good right, <laughs> good so you wrote this book about lobbying when that book came out in 2015 the, the business of America's lobbying the business of America's lobbying circa 2015 year before Trump takes office so during this time as uh, a new political uh, science PhD, you wound up hooking up with New America, which is a think tank around the yeah. same time. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. A uh, New America, for people who aren't familiar with it, is a think tank that people regard as uh, very independent, somewhat left leaning. Um, the head of it is a woman named Anne Marie Slaughter, who received a ton of notice for a number of things. I mean, she's a powerhouse and yeah, done, she does a, a, a ton of incredible work. Um, she wrote one article, and, and she's done a lot of things other than this, but this is, I think, one of the most well-known things that people will associate with her was an article a number of years ago that said something like, women can't have it all. And, and yeah. she uh, talked about her own incredible career in public service, but talked about all of the various sacrifices that were attendant with it. That's right. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Uh, so you joined New America also around the time this book came out? Yeah, a little bit before, but yeah. That's good fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and since then, you become one of the leading voices on issues with a duopoly, shall we say. Like, how did your attention end up uh, being drawn to this topic? Well, so after I wrote the, this book on corporate lobbying, one of the things that I sort of set myself to do was to try to see if I could convince Congress to spend more money on its own staff and expertise, because I, I realized that one way to fight back against the influence of lobbyists would be to give Congress some of its own independent power to actually evaluate policy and develop policy without having to rely on these armies, and, and I do mean armies, of, of corporate lobbyists who basically shape the uh, policymaking you know, environment. and. So you know, I went around duly talking to congressional offices and people in and around Congress. And I said, yeah, of, of course we should do this. And then you know, I tried to convince people 
in the ledge branch appropriations world, which is a very small world in which Congress sets its own budget. I said, look, you spend so little on yourselves. The lobbies spend so much more. Why don't you spend more on staff? And they say, oh, yeah, well, we probably should, but the politics of it are kind of kind of not so great. And, you know, I sort of realized at some point that, that th this system is not going to change because you have a, a, a structure of Congress that's incredibly top-down with party leaders basically controlling everything. And what that means is that the, the independent offices of members of Congress and the committees are starved of resources so that the leadership can control everything. And moreover, there's very little for rank-and-file members in Congress to actually do policy-wise because all they're doing is running to win the next election, and it's always the next election, even when you just had the last election. And moreover, because the, everything is so gridlocked and divided and polarized, the only thing you do is you beat up on the other side. And you know, as this is happening, we're sort of seeing the rise of, of Trump, and, and this is a kind of a, a big puzzle for a lot of folks in 2016. Well, where, where did this guy come from? And, you know, so at the same time, I'm sort of struggling with trying to figure out how do you get Congress to invest more in its own capacity. Uh, I'm kind of trying to understand how we got to this moment in which Donald Trump is not only able to win the Republican Party nomination, but become president. So I start doing kind of my own understanding of the history of how we got to, to this moment, which I talk a lot about in Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, and, you know, look at the kind of escalating partisan polarization and, and how it's really, you know, a, a polarization that is around identity and the story of America. And that's just really a, a very dangerous and unresolvable polarization and how that feeds in and exacerbates the, the, the two-party system. And then I said, well, okay, what, what does the rest of the world do? Which is something that I don't think a lot of Americans think about. I said, oh, actually, the U.S. is really the only two-party system among advanced democracies. And oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> continue, continue. And oh, hey, a bunch of countries use this system called proportional representation in which parties uh, are allowed to compete in these multi-member proportional districts so they get a share of seats in the legislature that's commensurate with their popularity. And that allows for multiple parties to flourish. And hey, that actually seems to work pretty well because then parties bargain together and coalitions are fluid. And those countries seem to be a lot better at solving problems. And hey, Maybe we should try that, and hey, maybe I should write a book about it. Wow. So first, <laughs> let's return for a moment to your trying to develop Congress's policymaking capacity. First, I am for increasing uh, staff for salaries and budgets. Uh, I'm for increasing member salaries yeah. as well, though I know the optics of that politically uh, are considered poor. Um, but I, I said, look, you know, it would be a very small price to pay for a more functional legislature if people weren't so beholden to industry. And, and this lobbying dynamic is certainly part of it. Um, so what you're suggesting is that for individual members, their policy making resources are kind of uh, secondary because they don't really get that much central uh, uh, sway as to what the policy is going to be. And it's really in the leadership. Does the leadership have robust resources that they draw on when they're trying to figure out what policies that, that, that they'd want to push? They have decently robust resources, I would say. I mean, a, a, even within the leadership, I mean, a lot of the resources are, are oriented towards communications and marketing uh, of policies. And I mean, so much of politics now is not about governing. It's about the perpetual campaign. And because we have these two parties that are fighting over this very narrow bit of terrain of some some sort of, you know, ill-defined center of maybe swing voters or, you know. Apparently 7% of voters, but continue. <laughs> oh, is that, is that what your, your support is? No, no, no. It, oh. it, it's uh, that the proportion of Americans who will cross party lines yeah. on the regular uh, has diminished from 22% to 7%. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's why I threw that no. number out. Because I, I had seen a poll where, where you were at 7% in a Trump-Biden uh, matchup recently. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm around that level. Thank you, Yang Gang. Love you. <laughs> so I'm with you on the need to increase congressional resources, though you're hitting a very powerful point, which is, look, the incentives now politically are not around policy. Yeah. Uh, they're around 
politics and optics and yes. you know trying to win the next race. Um, so think tanks play another role, which is that you all can also provide policy input um, that theoretically at least is independent of lobbying interests. Uh, that, 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 that's the role you all play, right? Yeah, that's that's the role we're supposed to play. Yeah, and and so um, certainly, I mean, I I'm, I'll say that I'm glad that think tanks uh, exist because at least they're like a different look, a different set of uh, perspectives, and you know, even though obviously, you know, different organizations have have different um, like alignments, uh, I think that you know, like I've I've seen a lot of good stuff flow from think tanks personally. Yeah, I, th- I think we do a, an okay job at New America. So. So circa 2015, 2016, you start thinking, wow, it turns out that policy is not the main driver or the, not the main priority for you all. It's around this other stuff. Uh, and then you realize that our political incentives are very misshapen relative to other countries out there. And you mentioned that there's a point at which we became polarized. Uh, can you trace back, and you wrote a book uh, that digs into the history but when the heck did polarization start to get worse? Because uh, right now people are kind of used to it, but it was yeah. not always this way. That's right. So, in fact, you know, I, I kind of traced the history of how we got to here. And I started in 1950 when the American Political Science Association puts out this report arguing for a responsible two-party system. And the critique of the U.S. system is that the parties are indistinguishable from each other, that they're basically, Democrats and Republicans are basically the same. They're both in the, you know, these broad overlapping coalitions of state and local parties that don't really stand for anything or they stand for the same thing. And voters have no meaningful choice. So what we need to become a, a, a real democracy is for voters to have choice and for there to be two parties that stand for two different things. And of course, you know, since no, nobody really listens to the political scientists, but that, that prophecy did kind of come true. Uh, so starting in the 1960s, the, you know, particularly around the, the issue of, of civil rights, the party started to realign the Democratic Party since the New Deal had been a coalition of northern liberals and southern conservatives. And you know, once the Democratic Party comes to kind of own the civil rights issue, there go the southern con- conservative Democrats who eventually migrate into the Republican Party. And Starting in the 70s, 80s, you see culture war issues start to take center stage more and more in American politics, and politics begin to nationalize more and more. And what happens is that the Southern conservatives go from being Democrats to Republicans, and a lot of the Northeastern liberal Republicans go to becoming Democrats. So what used to be a kind of four-party system, a multi-party system with liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats <coughs> alongside conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats basically collapses, flattens into a two-party system. Uh, and you know, really, really, this really kind of speeds up in the 90s. There, you know, We sort of think about the, the Gingrich takeover of, of Congress as kind of a watershed moment. But what Gingrich was really doing in that election was he was nationalizing elections, uh, kind of taking away politics from the old, every, all politics is local, to focusing on the national platform of the Republican Party and you know, really engaging in a much more aggressive attack on on the Clinton administration and Democrats in general. And that really starts a, a real kind of kind of sea change in the way in which elections are conducted. And the fact that the House had been in Democratic control for basically f- for 40 years up until that point, there was kind of a sense probably, you know, from in the 80s and even to the early 90s that, you know, Democrats basically had the House and Republicans were going to win the presidency most of the time and Americans wanted divided government so the party should work together. Well, Clinton wins in 92, so now Democrats can win the White House. Republicans take over Congress in 94, so now Republicans can win the House. And every election is a toss-up election. And so the, the the, the competitiveness goes up of national elections and the parties start to, to, to pull apart. The uh, Republican Party becomes more and more centered around Southern conservatives, uh, much, more, much more conservative, the sort of liberal Northeastern wing that sort of represents the kind of traditionalist, you know, kind of, kind of cautious 
uh, you know, small C conservatism is is gone. And Democratic Party, which had been split between kind of the, the urban, you know, northern liberals and the southern, western rural conservatives, becomes much more dominated dominated by the northern and urban urban liberals. And so the the images of the party in the, the public mind become much sharper. The parties stand for much clearer differences. And swing voters disappear, cross-pressured voters are, are forced into one side or the other, and everything becomes about winning the next election, in which case the party that is the opposition party wants to make the governing party, the party in the White House, look bad, so there's no cooperation. And all of this kind of ratchets on itself, keeps getting worse and worse, more demonization, more sorting. And so we have this two-party system now in which there's really no overlap. And the radical thing really is a genuine two-party system in this country. That That is the, the truly radical change. So we're, let's say, 27 years in, because Newt Gingrich won in 94, right? Yeah. So we're 27 years into this new polarization you describe. And your research shows that we are unique in this regard as well in terms of the depth of the polarization, right? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, not not entirely unique. Uh, the, the, this level of polarization is uh, what you find in Hungary and Turkey. So, you know, we have some company in, in Not it. the company it, necessarily not, want. <laughs> not, not the company that may be. Although apparently, you know, Hungary is the new, is the darling of the new Tucker Carlson, of the Tucker Carlson right now. So... Again, you know, not necessarily where, where, where you want to be in the U.S. So I, I found your international research to be fascinating where you, you point out uh, that America right now is not normal in terms of uh, various other democracies around the world. Uh, th there were some other findings uh, I thought were, were fascinating, too, from your work around the fact that because there are two parties, uh, the actual affection for one's identified party is not as high uh, as it is in other environments? Yeah, so the, the cross-national stuff is really fascinating. There's been a growing uh, amount of research on this in political science. So you know, generally, political scientists try uh, measure kind of how people feel towards their own party and how people feel towards the out party. So one of the things in, and it's not, not surprising when you have more parties, people are more likely to feel good about the party that they're voting for, because when you have five or six parties, you're more likely to find a party that speaks to you or speaks for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. And whereas when there's only two parties, a lot of people feel like they're voting for the lesser of two evils, or I don't really like either of the parties, but, you know, I got to vote for one because that's, you know, really, really all I have. So that so that's part of it. And people people like their parties better when there's more to choose from. But People also are okay with other parties and multi-party systems a little more. Now, there's two reasons for this. One is that in the U.S. system, uh, because people don't really love their parties that much, what both parties try to do is to convince people that the other party is truly dangerous, truly extreme, truly evil. The, the only way to, to unify our party is to have a common enemy. So whatever divisions we have... You know, we, we can work past them if the other side is, you know, basically evil. Uh, also, because of the way that the geographic partisan polarization has worked in the U.S., most people are surrounded by people of the same party. So it's a lot easier to demonize the other party when you, you don't really know anybody who votes for them and people who vote for them are people who have very different values and live in very different places. So uh, those two things contribute. Uh, and you know, in a, a multi-party system, there's no lesser of two evils argument because you know, if there's five, you, you can yell you and say the other party is too extreme, but then there's bunch of other options. So that, that kind of negative campaigning is not quite nearly as profitable. Uh, and also, be, because there are multiple parties, there's going to be a few parties of the left in more rural areas and a few parties of the right in more urban areas. Uh, and so people are more likely to know people who vote for different parties. It's harder to dehumanize the other side if you actually know people yes. who are in that party. Yes. And then you'll be like, oh, wait a minute, that person's in my carpool. They're not exactly. so bad. Yes. So I read something you wrote that you suggested the optimal number of parties 
would be between four and six inclusive. Is that right? That yeah, I would say between four and six. Now yeah, I mean that's uh, that that's my assessment. It's based on you know a sense that more than more than six probably becomes a little harder to differentiate between the parties for voters i mean you know you want to give people some choice but not an overwhelming choice you know when you, if you go to the grocery store and there's you know 30 different kinds of, of, Hate of that. cheerios you know yeah streamline it for me please yeah, I, yeah I, give I, me some <laughs> choice but like you know i'd like to have more than two choices of cereal yes i i think four or five or six sounds like uh, a great target uh, for number of parties this podcast is sponsored by helix sleep i've always been a mattress guy because i figured if i'm gonna do something for up to eight hours maybe i should do it right and helix sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So you started digging into this stuff in 2016, 2017. Did you coin the term doom loop? Is that one of your claims to fame? I, I popularized it. <laughs> All right. I, 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 I was it, it. It preceded me, um, but but I, I my, my yeah you know, my, my publisher. I, I was a little resistant to uh, to having that as the the title of my book, uh, but my publisher was like, "You got it. You got to do it. People are going to remember that." People do remember Doom yes. Loop, the two party Doom Loop, breaking the two party Doom Loop, by Lee Drutman. So. You settled on this reality, which, by the way, I have, I have now joined you in, which is like, oh, my gosh, like the, this two party system is not going to work. It's actually not designed to work <laughs> no, <laughs> necessarily. And so we should stop expecting it to work. Um, so you dug into it and started publishing pieces in 538 and in other places in law reviews around this set of ideas. Uh, and what is that? timeline been like for you your book came out in 2019 you were publishing pieces before then after then obviously your work gets more and more relevant and germane as the election comes and polarization gets worse and worse can you describe the reaction you've gotten uh and uh the the journey of being one of the in my opinion preeminent voices of this entire school of thought well that's very kind of you andrew i'm glad to, to have you as as part of this growing movement uh, I'm glad to be here, man. I mean, you're one of the intellectual uh, progenitors of it. So, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, well thank uh, you. Uh, although I can't claim to have invented multi-party democracy. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know, I, I published the, the the book came out in uh, in January of 20, 2020, or I guess it, the official pub date is like December 20, yeah, 2019 or something. That, yeah. um, so, you know, and I... And I, you know, did the did the usual book tour podcast uh, circuit, and yeah, I mean the the general reaction was yeah, that, that sounds like something we should do. It seems like we should have more than two parties. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of pathology with our party system, but you know, like, come on, man, you know that's never going to happen. That's just a pipe dream. Uh, so like, you know, I mean, I remember I remember talking to to one 
one prominent Washington, D.C. journalist at a, at a party, and I told her I'd written this book. She said, yeah, you know, I love your writing, but, like, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in books about things that will never happen. So, you know, that was kind of the, the reality that I, that I started out with. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I think after January 6th, something really changed in that suddenly people were a lot more interested in structural reform. And suddenly people realized, oh, wait, we, we thought that after Trump left that, that things were going to go back to normal. Oh, th things are not at all normal. But we, I think we need to do something much more radical than, than we thought. And so, I mean, I've seen the conversation just expand tremendously over the course of this year as, as the reality has set in that, you know, there's no, there's no back to normal. It, it, it only gets worse from here if we don't do anything. Amen. I am with you there. Uh, a couple of thoughts I've had that I may not have shared with everyone. Um, they, they might be in my uh, Twitter drafts, but I'm going to share them <laughs> now. Um, one was it was almost easier when you could blame everything on one person, where I think there were a lot of people who thought, well, if you defeat Trump, then things will, quote unquote, snap back to normal. Yeah. And then you realize that this, unfortunately, is the new normal that we're struggling with, which is a time of collapsing trust, uh, a time of people questioning whether democracy is going to make it through the next number of years. Uh, and one of the lessons that I've drawn from the last number of months that I think a lot of people share is that at this point, everything is on the table in terms of realistic scenarios for the United States of America. And by that, I generally mean bad stuff. Yeah, things could go in a lot of directions. The, 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 the range of possible is wild to contemplate. It's very, very broad because we've already seen scenes in American life that would have been considered science fiction or dystopian or, or unrealistically nightmarish uh, just a, a number of months prior. So everything should be on the table. Um, and that should include some positive things along the lines of the structural reforms that you advocate. Yeah. So one thing I love about your writing, too, is that you are unafraid to put real solutions out there. And a lot of folks in America today, they can describe a problem and then they actually veer away when it's time to solve it. <laughs> That's like a, a pet peeve of mine, shall we say. Um, so your book did not do that. Your book recommends a combination of ranked choice voting and proportional representation. That's right. Uh, and I'm a, a fan of both of these things. Can you talk about what you see as our most plausible path towards real reform? Yeah. So you know, I, I and uh, and and I agree. There's a lot of folks who are you know diagnosing problems and then say I, I don't know how to solve it. It's what academics often call the chapter ten problem, which is you know you have to write the solutions in chapter ten. So you know. I, I've yeah. never heard that term, but now I will totally <laughs> use it everywhere. It's like, hey, guys, write the fucking chapter 10, because <laughs> after nine chapters of scaring the shit out of someone with the problems or describing the dysfunction, which I think we've all done this. We read these books where it's like, OK, OK, you've got me. You've got me. I'm down. I'm down. <laughs> and then you wait for the fix. And then you're like, what the heck happened to the fix? Whereas in your case, you actually had a chapter yeah. 10. Yeah. So, I mean, my book was really oriented around building a case for why we ought to have more partisan, why we ought to change how, how we vote. So the, the first thing to understand is that the fact that we have only two parties is not a function of Americans wanting just two parties. <laughs> because God knows Americans want more parties. And you know, we, we've been, you know, pollsters have been, been asking this question for decades. And do you, do, you, do you think the two parties are doing an adequate job or do you want more parties? And, you know, for, for decades, 60, 65 percent of Americans have been saying, yeah, we want more than two parties. But problem is when you have uh, single member districts with plurality voting, third parties are treated as spoilers, wasted votes. So once you try to start a third party, everybody yells and screams, you're going to steal votes. You mean that happens? I'm, I'm joking, <laughs> obviously, because that was the main thing I got uh, yeah. over this last month. Continue, continue. So now the, the U.S. is is really very 
unique and 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 almost everywhere democracy is is really weird when you look at the, is uniquely the, dysfunctional. Continue. <laughs> indeed, but but most advanced democracies don't use single member districts. They use multi member districts with proportional allocation of votes, or they use some kind of of hybrid system in which there are compensatory party list votes, so that you instead of having to get to fifty one percent, you can get. 25% of, or 20% of support in a district, and then you get representation in the legislature. So we just, uh, I, don't, I don't know how many folks were following the, the recent German elections, but the winning party, which is the center-left party, got, got, I think, about 26% of the vote. And so they get 26% of the seats. And Germany has six parties, including one far-right party. And the, the parties get seats in the legislature in, you know, Rough proportion to how many votes they get. Now that allows more parties to form because the, the U.S. has a two-party system. Because in order order to win a seat in any district, you've got to get a plurality, usually you know 50, 50, 51 percent at least of votes in that district. And that means that anything that's not one of the two major parties is a is a spoiler. Uh, and so if you have larger districts you can have more parties. That's the basic rule of things. The larger the district size, the more parties you can have. Now, in the extreme version, you have Israel, which is one, uh, the, the entire country is one electoral district. They, people vote for parties instead of candidates, and Israel probably has too many parties. How uh, many does it have? I, I think it has 17, 17 parties. 17 yes in the last election. Uh, on the other hand, the Netherlands has the same, almost the same exact voting system. They have 13 parties in their legislature, including an animal rights party and a party for, for seniors. And you know, I mean, the, the Dutch system seems to work pretty well. Uh, so uh, there, you know, there across Europe, there are different uh, countries that use different formulas, but all, all of them fall broadly into the category of proportional representation. So, you know, the, the key to, to, to getting there is to end the single member district, which we use for, for the House. And there, there's no reason why we have to have the single member district. We've had multi member districts in, in our earlier history. It's not, not anywhere in the Constitution. The framers never, never debated it, although Thomas Jefferson actually came up with an early, early version of proportional representation that he was one of the, one of the, uh, the, the original but he never quite worked it out enough to, to be used. But of course, the framers thought we weren't going to have political parties, uh, which I think they was. They think that, yes. Yeah, which was, you know, I, I mean, I think, I think we realize that you can't really have modern mass democracy without political parties. Political parties are essential, which is, you know. You just why, want more than two, yeah. Well, you just want more than two, yes. <laughs> you want to avoid the binary. Binary thinking is, is, is very dangerous. It, puts us into us versus them. And, you know, the framers, although they, you know, they certainly were opposed to parties, one of the things that if you read them closely, what they feared was just two, two, two parties. Yeah, two John political. Adams was like yeah. two parties would be a great evil. Because you divide the country in half. I mean, with multiple parties, you can, I mean, this is fundamentally, you know, the, the Madisonian theory of government is you want to, you know. Have gonna, shifting factions, you have to yeah, team up to get exactly, anything done. Exactly. And the teams will change over time. You don't want a system where some folks feel like they're permanent losers because then they're going to view the system as illegitimate. And you don't want a system where some folks feel like they're permanent winners because then they're going to use that power to oppress everyone else. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Yeah, so there is a bill uh, that was put forward that tries to move us towards proportional representation. It's the Fair Representation yeah. Act, is that correct? Yeah, Fair Representation Act, sponsored by Congressman Don Beyer and, and a one few of, others. And one of the, the things that has been raised is that our population has increased so dramatically since all of this stuff got drawn up that it could be that the number of representatives we have is too small. Oh, oh it definitely is too small. 
I mean, we, we've been fixed at 435 House members since uh, 1911, although from the, uh, you know, the vintage Congress of, of 1789 started at, at 65 members of the, every census, the House increased its size. And then we just stopped around 1911 for somewhat arbitrary reasons. The, the U.S. compared to, I mean, the German Bundestag has about 700 members. The French Parliament has about 700 members. The British Parliament has somewhere in the 600s. So the, and the U.S. has a much larger population. So yeah, we, we should have a, a significantly larger House of Representatives too. Yes, and, and that would certainly lend itself towards uh, the, the multi-member districts yeah. that you're arguing for. Um, so one of the struggles I have is that it seems like a very, very dramatic uh, switch, though I agree with the goal. I agree with the paradigm change, obviously. I mean, I'm devoting uh, my waking life to trying to, to make uh, much of this happen. Bless you. Oh, thank you, Lee. <laughs> Bless you, too. Uh, so one of the arguments I'm making is around open primaries and ranked choice voting as an incentive improvement, regardless, even if, let's say, hypothetically, a lot of the same people won. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that at least you're in incentives would be better. And you argue for ranked choice voting as well as a way to uh, enable a lot of these changes um, in any context. Is that right? Yeah. 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 I'm a supporter. Uh, so uh, so y I take it you're favorable towards uh, the forward parties, open primaries and ranked choice voting initiatives, even if you think that that's a step towards this truly more uh, representative system that doesn't go as far as the Fair Representation Act. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm not I'm not a huge fan of open primaries, to be honest. I, I just get rid of primaries altogether. Interesting. I, I, I don't think there's any reason that we need primaries. And the thing I, I worry a little bit about open primaries is, is I tend to be a little a little concerned about things that are basically basically cut parties out of out of, out of the activity. And, you know, I think parties are incredibly important. And by focusing on, on things like nonpartisan open primaries, we actually undermine the ability of parties to, to choose their candidates and control their candidates and control their message, which I think is, is really important for being able to connect with voters. And so there's kind of a, a, a standard, you know, we, we, know what, we know what a forward party candidate is. We know what a forward party candidate stands for. An open primary, you're, you're taking that ability away from the party. Uh, and, I, you know, I think the, the, the challenge, I mean, you know, Trump you know, was came, the, the by opening up primaries too much, you, you allow, you know, any any demagogue to come in and claim I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. Uh, I, I think I think that was a tremendous m mistake that we made in, in the history of this country. In the progressive era, there were kind of two paths. One one was an incipient movement for proportional representation and the other was a movement for direct primaries. And I think. Uh, and both of them were challenging the sort of corruption of the two-party system at the time. Uh, you know, but I, I think that that was the mistake in the progressive era was trying to assume that we could focus and make everything nonpartisan and open rather than just expanding the number of parties and giving people more meaningful choice. So I am a fan of the Fair Representation Act. Um, it, it seems like it has been something of a non-starter in it, terms of yeah, uh, it has been. People, I mean, there there just hasn't been a lot of push around it. And you know, part of this is is a matter of so of of people coming to understand, uh, you know, what, what what would that mean? I mean, the you know the the democracy reform space in Congress has been you know totally taken up with with what are very urgent and very real challenges around voting rights and you know, I certainly am a, a, a tremendous supporter of the Freedom to to Vote Act uh, which is now up for debate in Congress. Yeah, it, it stalled in the Senate because that right now. Uh, you need to bypass the filibuster, which they don't have the votes for, yeah. unless a critical number of senators uh, decides that the filibuster shouldn't stand in the way of the Freedom to Vote Act, um, which I, I'm on that page, by the way, that uh, the filibuster standing in the way of protecting voting is not the right way to go, in my opinion, uh, given, given what we're facing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... Let's say for a moment that we can support the Fair Representation Act, which would move us towards proportional representation, and then also accept that that uh, is right now not going to get the support it needs in Congress without you know a lot of things changing. Yeah. What do you see as the the next set of steps for 
reformers. And I'm so glad that you've gotten a lot more interest around uh, these measures in the last number of months, unfortunately, because people are seeing how it's all turning to shit around us. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so what do you see as the sequence? Well, you know, I mean, I mean, I think actually what you're doing is an important part of the sequence, which is party building, party organization. Yeah, building. let's do it. Let's go. You know, because I think there's there's this this sense that you know there's a lot of people who are political independents or politically homeless, but you know, without a sense of of oh, I belong to a party, and I feel like there's a sense of identity. You need a tribe. And, and you things. need a banner. Yeah. Right. So I mean, I think I think what you're doing is absolutely what we need to be doing. Is and you know and, and maybe there's some other parties at different parts of the political spectrum, but a sense that you know there are some alternatives and you know maybe you pick a few races strategically to run a candidate in. Uh, and so, if you were to try and push us towards particular races, are there features that you're thinking like, ooh, that would be ideal? Aside from winnable, obviously. Well, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I think there are, uh, you know, I mean, I think the places to to uh, to compete would be in districts that are you know lopsided for one party or the other where so if you were to run in a district in new york city where there's not going to be a republican challenger but there might be some republican voters who you know might might you know support be attracted, be attracted to, to someone who's not the the hyper liberal democrat who won in the primary or you know vice versa if there's you know some conservative very conservative districts where you know some somebody like you know Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene wins the republican primary there's a lot of republican voters they're never going to support a democrat but you you run as a forward party well well that's something different and so th this is one of the main insights, and I've been trying to tell people this. I hope you back me up on this, Lee. All politics is tribal at this point. And a lot of folks, and I had this experience directly, will just completely shut down if you have a D next to your name or an R next to your name. Right, So, so exactly. if you have something neutral next to your name, they were like, I don't know what to make of this. I'm gonna, yeah. <laughs> exactly, right? You know, I mean, the, 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 the label Democrat is so loaded right now for so many people. Uh, but you know, you could have the same person saying the exact same things with something else next to them. It's called an independent or a forwardist or right. whatever, and people would have a completely different reaction. Right, and you know, you 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 kind of make some gestures just to some cultural identity symbols that are important, and suddenly, oh, this is a different person. Amen. Yes. This. So this is what we're working on with the forward party, yeah. and I'm happy to say that there are different folks who see that we're chasing down the structural changes that would enable more parties to exist. And I'm the first person to say that I don't want three parties. I do want four or five or six parties. That's what we got to have. Uh, so it's not necessarily about the forward party candidate winning everything or having control over everything. Though I have said to people, and I hope you agree, that if you were to get even a few seats in Congress, you could have outsized influence because of how polarized right. the, the country is and, and thus the legislature. Right. If, if, if you had, say, six members of the forward party who were elected in 2022 and seated in the Congress and the, and the balance of power in the House were, was was you know, less than six seats, you could say, we're going to vote for whichever speaker, you know, meets the You could control our, the speaker. That's demands. incredible. <gasps> I, you know, yeah. I mean, or if you had one senator, you know. Or one you, senator in a 50-50 in a Senate or a 49-50 Senate, Senate yeah. depending on which way the 49-50 goes. This is achievable, everyone. We can get this done maybe in 12 short months if we put our hard hats on, which I'm super <laughs> excited about. So... You, you've been ahead of the curve this last several years. A lot of people are concerned about, well, I don't say concerned about, I mean, who the heck knows where, where, where people are leaving. <laughs> but, um, but people project, and I'm in this group, project that uh, Republicans are probably going to take back the House in 22, uh, which is next year. Yes. Uh, and then it's going to be very difficult for Democrats to get a whole heck of a lot done for the following two years. Um, then we'll see a Trump-Biden sequel in 2024. Um, and uh, know that there is a, a lot of uncertainty as to who prevails in that scenario. Um, some people would favor Trump if things don't 
shift appreciably between now and then. I've got a core thesis for you. Let's see if you agree with this. Lee. Okay. Oh, no. Let's do it. So, so the core thesis is that Americans have been getting increasingly upset about what's been happening or not happening in our government for the last, let's say, 27 years for fun, uh, just to match it up with okay. <laughs> what you described. And so they they keep, we keep casting about for different solutions because the previous team is letting us down. Uh, Philip Howard described it as the party's playing you lose, I lose, you lose, I lose, while the people just get more and more pissed off. <laughs> Bill Maher said that the only message Americans understand now is throw the bums out. And it's just whoever the bums are <laughs> in office at any moment in time get the brunt of that. And so this thesis I'm becoming increasingly persuaded by is that people keep casting about for a change from the previous thing while we get while we get more and more insane the whole time. Um, and so this dynamic would probably lead one to favor the out of power party in 22 and 24 um, because saying, hey, we're doing great, like, you know, give us the ball again for four years is going to be less persuasive than uh, they too have failed you. Uh, and let's, uh, you know, like burn it all down, uh, you know, more or less uh, is one way to, to look at it. Um, what do you think about that general uh, description of the arc? So uh, political scientists have, have their own term for this. It's called thermostatic public opinion. Uh, and you can think of it as you're in a room and, you know, it's it's too hot. So you turn it to to, to a little bit colder, but, but there's a bit of a lag and then it gets too cold. And then you're like, it's too cold. So we got to turn it back to too hot. Uh, but in this metaphor, the, 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 the cold keeps getting colder and the hot keeps getting hotter and there's no 70 degree setting which would be very pleasant uh so uh, that's so this is called thermostatic public pressure ther thermostatic public opinion and public this is opinion. this is you know i mean th th there's almost this clockwork uh if you look at midterm elections going back as far as we've had midterm elections the president's party almost always loses seats unless there's some some like extraordinary circumstances there's a few cases uh, where, where that hasn't held, but almost almost always it has it, it held. And the idea is that people want government to do more when Republicans are in charge, and then people say, oh, government's doing too much, the country's moving in a too liberal direction. So now, uh, this is not most people, because most people are solidly R or solidly D, but there is a certain slice of the electorate, I don't know, I mean, it's been shrinking over time. Uh, you know, we, we just put it at 7% before, who's just sort of pissed off all the time and, you know, oh, you know, Biden made these promises and, oh, now he's not doing this. Oh, well, maybe we'll put the Republicans back in. And also what happens in the midterm elections typically is that the people who, who you know, in this case, Democrats, you know, they, they were so jazzed up to throw Trump out and now, OK, Trump's gone. So, we don't, you know, maybe we're not really going to turn out, whereas now Republicans are so angry that, that Democrats are in power that, that they're going to turn out. So there's this sort of differential mobilization that's happening also. But the, the effect of it is the same that, you know, we go we go, you know, too hot, too cold, way too hot, even more way too cold. And, you know, eventually the whole the, the poor thermostat, it's going to it's probably going to break. If only there was some sort of like setting in the middle where people could. If just... only there was some setting in the middle, the warm. We should have <laughs> called ourselves the warm party, the just right party, <laughs> the Goldilocks party. You can see where this is going. Uh, <laughs> so so, uh, so it sounds like most political scientists, yourself included, would expect conventional wisdom to hold next fall. Yes. Uh, but this idea of thermostatic public opinion, it's so excellent that a lot of us instinctively have sensed that dynamic and the fact that it's got its own name must mean it's very real. It's very legit it's, and buttoned up. It, there's a, there's uh, a lot, send you a lot of papers and books proving it. Uh, so you wrote another paper that came up recently that argued that proportional representation is uh, I'm not sure if you use the word necessity, but would be a massive plus for a stable democracy if that democracy is multi-ethnic and uh, diverse. Yes. And yeah, this was a, a piece in the, uh, just, just out in the NYU Law Review. Uh, and you know, the argument here is, you know, basically what I'm trying to do is draw on a lot of uh, comparative constitutional scholarship, which is there's a lot of a lot of scholars who look around the world and say, what what 
what are the constitutional rules that make for a healthy, multi-ethnic, multiracial democracy? And you know, we in the U.S. we think like having a multiracial, multiethnic democracy is this like some this is like this radical departure. But actually, you look around the world, and, and there are a lot of multiethnic, multiracial democracies. Some are relatively stable. Some are not so stable. Give us an example of a good one. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, Belgium is a, I mean, it's not, I mean, I know, it's a great one, but, you know, it's... Canada it, came to mind for me. Canada. Uh, New Zealand, actually, is a, is a pretty good example of a, of a stable multi-ethnic Canada, too. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, but the, the, uh, the insight uh, that a lot of folks have had is that the thing that you want to avoid in a diverse, multi-ethnic, multiracial society is winner-take-all institutions. And there's a reason you want to avoid that is because when power can be concentrated in just uh, the 51 percent and the 51 percent can rule over the 49 percent, uh, that, that makes elections awfully high stakes and it makes it really hard for groups to share power. I mean, fundamentally, it's the same insight we were talking about with Madison before, which is that if you want to make uh, democracies, democracy work, you need to have fluid coalitions. You need to have different groups working together on some issues and not other issues, uh, you know, but, but sometimes working together, right? You know. Coalitions are fluid, different allies, different enemies, and and you don't want to have a, a, a situation in which one group can gain total power. Yeah, I mean, people say multi-ethnic, multi, multi-racial democracy can't work. What about New York City? It's the most diverse place probably in the world. Uh, and, you know. No, no one group has is is trying to have dominant power over any other one group. It's not a binary. It's a, I mean, how many how many ethnicities are in New York? Like a lot of ethnicities for sure. Though we yeah. do have one dominant political party. We but, do, uh, but but I suppose that that one party is uh, splitting up power in various ways. Yeah. To point. Yeah, that 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 is the idea. And yeah, I think New York City would work better if it were a multi-party city too. But the idea is, and this is you know an idea that that Madison got from Voltaire, which is which is about you know religious liberty, there's one, you know, religion, it's arbitrary. If there's two religions, people go to war and try to cut each other's heads off over what happens after their heads get cut off. And if there's many religions, then people can live in peace because no one side is trying to dominate the other side. And that, you know, that's the fundamental insight uh, in order to have a stable, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, diverse society is that you have to have a have a political system that allow that that requires parties and groups and ethnicities to to work together to share power and doesn't create permanent enemies and winner take all two party binary systems with you know particularly with strong presidential power really create that binary condition which is really bad for people getting along especially diverse societies I think that's something that a lot of Americans would be very, very um, sensitive to, given that it, it seems like race is the flashpoint for a lot of politics nowadays uh, and, and our media. And so I found this article of yours to be an argument to be very fascinating, which is, look, if you wanted to manage a multi-ethnic society in a stable way, you'd want more political parties. Yes. And I, I mean, I, I haven't made that argument explicitly myself. Um, but now I might start making it. Thanks please to do, <laughs> please do. It's 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 free. Other, I, I'm just you know I'm just getting it from others and and repackaging it. You and me both, Lee. You and me both. <laughs> so you've now been on this particular train for let's call it five years. Uh, are you optimistic, optimistic or pessimistic? And uh, and what what do you look forward to? And I want you to be honest because. One of the things I say in my book is there's something called constructive institutionalism when we all pretend shit's going to work out uh, because we're kind of, you know, biased towards uh, like that framing of the the issues or problems because we represent institutions. Right. And you know, we're generally can do and optimistic and be like, oh, you know, we, we do this or that. Like, what, what, you know, you've been in this space for a while. Uh, what are you sensing uh, lies ahead for us all? Well, uh, short term I'm pessimistic, but long term I'm optimistic. Uh, I, I think that the, the next several years are going to be really rough. Uh, the next few elections are going to be 
I think incredibly stressful. I think I think there will be a level of violence and uncertainty that that those of us who have lived in America for on, for our entire lives have never really experienced. Uh, and you know, that that's uh, I, I I don't really that that train is is speeding, and I don't really see any way of it slowing down. But you know, I, I do think that longer term that that we we will build back better to to borrow a phrase. Uh, and you know, I think thanks to the work that that you and and many others are are doing to try to think about a a, a better future, a better system of, of governing ourselves. You know, we can we can rebuild. And you know, if I look at the history of American democracy, it's a history of ups and downs. Uh, and there have been moments in which things have looked pretty dark for for American democracy. And then at the at those moments of crisis, you know, the, you know when when it becomes clear that the status quo is is no longer tenable and that the uh, there's no path forward other than to to change then then we change i think there's tremendous parallels between now and the late gilded age in which inequality was incredibly high in which the two parties were incredibly corrupt and there was kind of an institutional uh, breakdown in the system, as well as you know, changing demographics and high, high levels of immigration, and you know that led to the progressive era in which we really totally reimagined how we do democracy in America. And you know, I think we made some mistakes in the progressive era, particularly uh, being overly embracing of, of nonpartisanship and and the idea that you could somehow have institutions without politics and i hope we don't make those mistakes again but you know i think the the extent to which we totally change we put put forward the direct primary direct election of senators uh, uh the referenda uh and and uh you know initiative direct direct democracy and most importantly women's suffrage uh you know which that that was a movement which you know for for years it seemed like nothing would change and then it changed. And, you know, the, these movements sometimes played well with each other and sometimes didn't. There was no one progressive movement, just a lot of overlapping social movements. But, you know, what I see in the, the energy, particularly around young, uh, that young people are, are, are engaged in who are really dissatisfied with our political system, I see a lot of new social movements organizing. I see a lot of people getting really engaged in politics. Uh, and, you know, I, I think ultimately the, this moment of chaos will cohere into a, into a much better and improved version of American democracy. But, but I don't think it will be without some moments of, of real heartache and, and sleeplessness for many of us. Well, so it sounds like you think the future is uh, accept politics and create systems that allow for politics yes. among different parties. Yes. So you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> America's going to wind up with four or five or six political parties, and it's going to be a very, very rocky road. Hopefully you can help speed us along that road, uh, Lee. Like, let, let's try and get there as quickly and painlessly as possible. I, though I, I'm generally with you in terms of your read of the the coming number of cycles, uh, but hopefully we can make them better. I hope so. I, I hope I'm wrong and, and we get there faster. Yeah. And we find a more direct path. Me too. Forward. Maybe forward <laughs> will be the path. Thank you so much, Lee. Thank you. This was a delightful conversation. <laughs> <laughs>